We're looking at the little book, the smallest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. Obadiah, what a great little book. The Old Testament had 32 different authors. And uh, 39 books. The New Testament only had eight authors for 27 books. And only three of the eight were actually of the original 12 that followed our Lord. But we're looking at a, a little prophet by the name of Obadiah. I uh, heard about this fellow who didn't want to go to church. And his mom hollered down the stairs and said, are you getting ready for church? He said, no, I don't want to go to church. And she said, you need to get up and go to church. And they were arguing back and forth. And finally he said, why do I have to go to church? She said, because you're the pastor and you're preaching this morning. <laughs> I was glad to get this. I had my little procedure. We won't talk about that. But they gave me this page when I checked out and it really perked my interest. It said, requested services, UPT, urine pregnancy test. I was like, whoa. But then it said, results, negative. I was like, Phew. That's true. This is, I have the paper. That's what it says. I was like, what, what did they give me that paper for? But anyway, we all are just relieved to know I'm not pregnant. That, that it's, a, it's a strange world we're living in. Who knows? Anyway, I, tell, I use the humor to start because sometimes I'm really serious and passionate and preaching, and, I, I, and so humor doesn't fit, you know. Yeah, sometimes you preach on hell and you don't want to tell jokes through a message on hell because there's nothing funny about hell. I mean, hell is real. We mentioned that on Wednesday. But uh, we're looking at Obadiah. And when you find Obadiah, if you stand, we did have some scenes. Um, I don't want them up there now, but we had them before church. And after church, we'll play them again. Some photos of Petra, which is where the Edomites dwelt. And Obadiah is addressing the Edomites. Chapter there's only one chapter, verse 1 of chapter 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. Drop down to verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the cities, the clefts of the rocks, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I Bring thee down, saith the Lord. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, the light of the world, the lighthouse on a hill that we can see from no matter where we are and know that we can always flee to the Lord Jesus. And I pray if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Savior today, they'll be saved. Lord, I'm preaching on the Old Testament, but still... Your Holy Spirit will speak. And as much as you'll speak in any of the books of the Bible, while I'm not preaching specifically on the cross, I just pray you reveal the truth of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection to someone today. And God, for those that are here that are already believers, that they'll examine their hearts today and make sure that they don't have a problem with pride. And I battle it every day. We all battle it that help us to examine our hearts and to realize we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so that you don't have to humble us. Bless us today now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many nations have, throughout history have flexed their muscles on the stage of humanity and then disappeared. 
and vanished into obscurity. And Edom's that nation, one of the nations that no longer exist. We know today the Edomites, uh, most would consider the Jordanians the people of Edom, but they uh, no longer exist as a nation. They were descendants of Esau. You remember Jacob's twin. And they've been at odds with Israel for hundreds of years. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, God said, don't hate the Edomites. They're your relatives. Uh, but there was constant conflict. We think of so many famous Edomites throughout history or the history of the Bible. We think of the Herod clan. They were Edomites. Herod the Great, he wasn't a great person. He was called Herod the Great because of his great building projects. But the Herod clan, they were Edomites and they hated the Jews and treated them terrible. Think of John the Baptist and James killed by the sword. The Herod clan, the Edomite clan was always bad to Israel. Uh, and the people of Petra were Edomites. And they opposed Israel, Moses' request to pass through their land. They wouldn't let him pass. They opposed King Saul and fought against David and Solomon and Jehoshaphat. And they rebelled against Jehoram. And, of course, that was the time frame where most people believed they were destroyed as a nation. But from the 13th century to the 6th century, they settled in Petra, a mountainous area south of the Dead Sea. And the thrill of going there, and what a sight it is, the beautiful multicolored rock and how they carve these massive buildings into the side of these mountains, uh, the treasury and other things, and a movie theater, and all, not movie, but uh, play theater. Uh, they didn't have movies back then, but they had plays. And all this stuff was just fascinating to me. And to get there, you had to go through a narrow passageway. On either side, you had cliffs 200 to 250 feet high, some as high as 1,000 feet. As I was walking through there, I was amazed by how those, how those warriors must have been so skilled to climb those walls. They had little steps carved into the side of the wall, and they would climb up 200 and some feet in the air on this little concrete wall. I wouldn't go up there with a ladder if there was a rope tied to me. I wouldn't go up there in an elevator unless it had four walls around it. I mean, it's just scary to think about those guys quickly getting up the wall to protect anyone from passing through their territory. Fascinating stuff. And some cliffs, as I said, is 1,000 feet high. Demetrius had an army of 8,000 and could not get through uh, this passageway. Uh, God would judge Edom, though. He'd judge her because she rejoiced over Babylon's victory. In the 137th Psalm, David said, Remember, Lord, the children of Edom, who said burn, or raise is the word there, burn the city, referring to Jerusalem. And God would judge them for encouraging Babylon to burn the city. God would judge them for their pride. One Jewish man of the Maccabean line would conquer Edom about 125 years before Christ. Uh, Edom would revive, so to speak, and then be defeated again about 108 years after Christ by Rome. But Edom no longer exists as a nation. You can read about them in Ezekiel chapter 35. Verse 1, we look at verse 1. First of all, we'll <clears throat> just examine uh, this, these few verses here. The vision of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, his name means servant of Yahweh or servant of the Lord. Now, mark your Bibles. It says, thus saith the Lord. You notice the word Lord there is a capital L, three small letters. That is Adonai, a word meaning master, uh, master or Lord, concerning Edom. And it goes on to say, we have heard a rumor from the Lord. There's another word Lord, but notice the letters are different. 
These are all capital letters. This is Yahweh, the covenant God of the Old Testament. And so here he says, Thus saith the Lord God concerning, We have heard a rumor from Yahweh, from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, let us go up against her in battle. So God sends an ambassador to all the heathen nations, the enemies of Edom, and raises them up. And of course, we know that the Edomites had lots of leagues and contracts. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But, uh, you know, those would all just be abandoned. God would turn the heart of the enemy nations against her. Uh, Obadiah, as we said, his name meant servant of the Lord, was a resident of Judah. Now remember, there were two nations. We had Judah and Israel. And we think of the Israelites as the 12 tribes. But after the divide, excuse me, after the divide under Solomon's immoral reign, he had all these leagues with heathen people and Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom. You had the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, and their capital was Samaria. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes, the capital city was Jerusalem. Well, Obadiah was from Judah, so he had a passion and a heart for Jerusalem, and so certainly he would be bothered by what the Edomites did to his city. But we find here uh, in the original language, which none of us can read, uh, I took Hebrew, but don't read it. We know that uh, he's a, a very skilled writer. Scholars tell us he has a poetic style, but you see in this writing his big vocabulary and his passion and his emotion as he writes this book. And that's the thing about writers. We sometimes don't understand all that, but we depend on our scholars uh, from the great seminaries and great godly men and great books and commentaries who tell us this stuff, that he was passionate with a great vocabulary, a very emotional writer. And we know that it says here in verse 2 regarding Edom now. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. This nation only had 20,000 people, total amount of people at this time. They were small, but it's not that they were small in numbers. They were small in honor. Look what it says here. I've made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. Why would everyone hate them? Well, because they controlled a passageway. And rather than have to go all the way around the mountains of Edom and Moab, you'd want to cut through this shortcut, and they wouldn't let people pass. They made leagues and agreements and so forth, covenants with other nations to allow them to pass, but at a great expense. But small caravans would try to pass through, and rather than let them pay a little and pass through, they would kill them and steal all their goods. And so word would get back to these nations about the Edomites and how they were treated so terribly. Maybe one person would escape sometime and go back to his, his home country like Tyre and say, we tried to pass through and they killed everyone. And so Tyre, who they traded slaves with, according to Amos, Edom and Tyre traded slaves, they would turn against her. And so would all the surrounding nations because they were just small in honor and hated. In verse 3, we read this already, the pride of thine heart. You see, they dwelt in the rocks. Literally, it's the word Selah, and that was actually the name of their capital. We think about their arrogance, their pride because of their dwelling place. <clears throat> you know, be careful in life. We struggle with pride, and there's many things that cause pride. I think about pride in, in, in all areas of life, even from being a child. When you're poor and you go to school and there's some wealthy kid 
and they make fun of you because you don't have what they have. That's pride. And when some smart kid makes fun of the guy who struggles and barely makes the grade because they're smarter, that's pride. It manifests itself very early in our lives. Or the bigger kid, the athletic kid who picks on the smaller kid. He's got a problem of pride. He thinks he's better because he's bigger or, or faster. And so it's not just uh, in adults. It's not just in rich people. We all struggle with pride. It's a problem. And here they had a dwelling place. Some people have a nice home. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a nice home. But if that's your entire purpose in life and everyone who comes to your house has to get the tour and you have someone who barely makes it in life and you show them your mansion and none of you have a mansion, but you understand pride can manifest itself in so many ways. And so we have to just constantly be aware of the problem of pride in our life. Um, so we think of all the Bible characters. Remember Saul, when he first started out, Saul was a humble man. Then he became proud. Moses was humble. I mean, think of how humble he was in the beginning. He didn't think he could speak. He didn't think he could lead. He even questioned God as, why are you calling me? I, I can't even speak. I, I don't have a good vocabulary. I mean, and yet we find him as humble in the beginning, but then eventually... When he's told to speak to the rock, he once again smites the rock. He had some sort of pride, maybe in the staff that had worked so many miracles in his life, from the snake to the staff and back, and then, you know, the cross into the sea. I don't know what happened there, but God was very angry with that outburst of pride and sin. And we think of so many others that were pride in the begin, or proud or humble. We think of the Josephs, both Josephs in the Bible seem to be humble men. I like Joseph of the Old Testament who wept when he revealed himself to his brothers. That's, that's humility. And Joseph of the New Testament who would not embarrass his wife. You know, he was willing to suffer some persecution rather than throw her under the bus. Not that they had buses back then, but he, he was a humble man. And so many in Scripture, Jacob, remember, was a very proud person until God touched him. And then he was a humble man. You know, when God touches you, you'll walk different. Amen? You'll walk in humility. And so pride is consistent throughout Scripture. It's consistent in society. We can see it in leaders of the world. We see it in famous people and rich people. Yet we have to examine the mirror, the glass of the Word of God, as James calls it. I look in the glass and I see a very proud person. And it's myself. So we have to be careful. Pride is an overestimation of oneself and importance while manifesting a belittling attitude towards others. We think we're more important than we are. I was going to preach on humility today, but I think I'll wait for a bigger crowd. We all struggle. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been there where I've had to just realize what I really am. You know, we start to think, wow. And I'm not saying not to say, well, thank God that he's gifted me spiritually in an area. But always give him credit for the successes in your life. You know, everything good comes from the Father above, the Father of light, Scripture says. So you, you can't take credit in and of yourself. Even people who don't know God were still created in his image and given certain gifts and talents and abilities. They're not given spiritual gifts yet. 
till they're saved. But everything good comes from God. Think of the origin of pride. Ezekiel chapter 28, Satan, the great musician of heaven, reared up and said, I'm going to be great and I'm going to be in control. And I'm, you know, he just thought he was much better than he was. And God just took him and threw him down to earth, just threw him out of heaven. And then we think of its first human display. When Satan said to Eve, go ahead and eat the fruit. You'll be as God. You'll have all this knowledge. You'll understand good and evil. You'll be very intelligent. Go ahead and eat the fruit. And think of the effects on humanity in Romans 1. Professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. That's how it's affected humanity. Think of the foolishness in our world. To think that there's a big explosion and we all fell into place in our nervous system and our brain and our heart and we're complete people, body, soul, and spirit, and all that other stuff, all because of a big accident. How dumb can you get? You know, think of the lunatics that are called scientists telling us how we evolved. You know, I was that monkey swinging through the tree. I lost my tail and became a PhD. It's just total stupidity. And yet the world is just going that way. Secular colleges, all of them teach the Big Bang or some form of evolution. Of course, every few years they find out something's wrong, they have to change again, you know. Uh, and there's always the question of where did that little tube of stuff come to the earth to begin with to start this all off? And it's just all stupidity. And that's why the Bible says professing themselves to be wise, they became fools to believe that stuff. But, but look at Scripture. Jeremiah tells us it, pride deceives the heart. Uh, Daniel says pride hardens the mind. Uh, Psalm 73, 6 says it binds the body like a chain. Uh, Proverbs 11, it brings shame. Proverbs 13, it causes contention. You know, when people don't get along, guess what's behind it all? Pride. Well, I'm right. And you're wrong. That's all pride. The results of pride, think of Proverbs 16, 18, says it goeth before destruction. And then we find 1 Peter 5, 5, and this is pretty personal. It said, God resisteth the proud. God resists proud people. He's against pride. Pride is what causes people go, to go to hell. What does it say? It's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to be saved. That's what it says. Now, I was just last week, I was threading a needle to sew a button on, and I, I had trouble getting that little thread through that needle. I had my reading glasses on, and I looking it, working it. It's frustrating to me. I have these great big hands. I'm not really great, a great seamstress. I mean, I just obviously can barely survive with getting a button on. And I don't even do a good job in the button. If you look closely, you say, well, you're really terrible. But the point is that little tiny, tiny hole. Now, I've heard some say, you know, well, the archway was called a needle and a camel would get down to go through and humble itself and all this. There's no evidence that in any literature that any arch into a city was ever called a needle. It's just something preachers made up to preach. There's no evidence. I've asked so many people to verify that. So then, Pastor, how could a rich man get through the eye of a needle? Well, with God, all things are possible. That's the point there. That's the hyperbole there. 
The Lord wanted us to understand that pride will hinder someone from being saved. And for them to be saved, it's going to take a miracle for them to get through that needle's eye, the eye of the needle. Pride's a terrible thing. Uh, well, you know, we can go on and say Hezekiah's pride cost him his land and his family. Nebuchadnezzar's pride made him a lunatic. Remember, he lost his mind. He was actually walking on the walls of the city and saying, look at this great empire I found. And his pride made him so sick that God just made him a lunatic. Made God so sick, it made him a lunatic. Uh, and then we think about Uzziah's pride made him a leper. It cost him his body. I mean, on and on and on, we could do about, talk about the effects of pride on the human race. And we pick up here in verse 4. Thou, excuse me, though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, there's that pride, and thy set thy nest amongst the stars. And so many people today feel their position in life makes them better than everyone else. My kids, uh, they laugh at me because they, we, they talk about who my heroes are and they get a kick out of it. I, I, I would have loved to have met Billy Graham in my life because he's a great evangelist. Okay, I, I would have liked to have met different ones. I look forward to heaven and meeting you know, the patriarchs and the Bible writers. But more than that, I can't wait to meet Jesus. But I have never been a fan. You won't get me to cross the street to meet the greatest athletes, and my kids laugh at this. I, I said, if, if the greatest, if I, I said one time, if Michael Jordan were across the street, I wouldn't go over there to get his autograph. I don't know what's wrong with me, but that just doesn't impress me. And Hollywood doesn't impress me either. I mean, a person who lives for God, that impresses me. Because that, to me, is the hardest thing to do. We talked last week about living for God being agonizing, right? That Hebrew word, or Greek word, excuse me, agon, the race, in Hebrews 12, the word agony. So it impresses me to see a man who lives his whole life a life of godliness. And I don't care if he's a Baptist, I'm just saying. A man who lives for God, that's who I want to meet. You know, I, I, you think of the people who've been through it. I mean, you think of those that have been persecuted over time. Bible translators, I'd like to meet them. But my point is this, that, you know, in this world, there's a lot of people that are elevated because of position, rank, and money. They have their nest amongst the stars, but God's not impressed with them. And God deals with pride. And the Edomites, they were impressed with their dwelling place. Remember, they were prejudiced. They hated everyone who wasn't an Edomite. They were persecutors, especially of Jews. They were proud and they were prosperous by robbing the small guy. Now let's pick up in verse 5 several things. We want to look first of all at the fact that their possessions were devoured. Look at verse 5. If these come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen until they had enough? If the grape gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some grapes? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. They would lose everything. They wouldn't have enough grapes left to even glean. That's what that word means there. They, they, they wouldn't be able to glean handfuls on purpose like little Naomi did in the fields of Boaz. They're going to lose it all. In fact, when you go there today, you can see the remnants of the past, but you can see that, that they have nothing even today. Just tourism. 
They had to keep water in cisterns. They had a pretty elaborate water system, pretty interesting stuff, but God just took it all. So first of all, we find their possessions were devoured. Now, how is all this going to happen? Verse 6 asks, verse 7 says, their allies had deserted them. Their allies had deserted them. Look, all the men of that confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound unto thee. There is none understanding in him. No one, you're not going to understand any of this, God says. But it's all going to go against thee. Their friends and neighbors would desert them. The word confederacy, confederacy here is translated in Joshua 9, 6, league, league. And every time you see the word covenant in the Bible, it's that same Hebrew word translated confederacy here. So those that made leagues with them or covenants with them or treaties or whatever you want to call it by today's definition, no matter what they agreed with, they'd all break those agreements. Sort of like what we did to the Native Americans. We made all kinds of treaties with the Native Americans. We, we treated them so terrible, didn't we? We broke all the treaties. My son's in ministry to them out in South Dakota. And the resentment toward the white eyes, as they call us, is unbelievable. And we are hundreds of years away from when those tragic events began. You think of that. The resentment being forced in those kinds of places to live away from you know, everything. We took everything from those people. And, and, and so we know that breaking a treaty is, is a bad thing. And everyone who had a treaty with them would break it. And then the peace would be gone. You know, peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And you know that. And, and we know that it includes security, trust, a prosperous relationships between, relationship between two parties. Now that's gone. Everybody's going to turn against them. And then the eating of bread, it talks about here. These close <clears throat> times as customs and tell us those closeness, that breaking bread with someone pointed to closeness and fellowship. And of course, that would all be gone. There's none understanding of it, is what that Hebrew means. So the Edomites aren't going to know what happened. They're going to think, what's going on? All these countries we had treaties with, we, we broke bread with these people. We had peace with them. And all of a sudden, they're all against us. Why is that? Because God was sick of their pride. God was sick of their pride. Look at it, Proverbs 21.1. And you want to mark this in your Bible. I referred to this, I think, a while back. And this is one you want to mark in your Bible. And you're going to need to mark this because after election day, there's going to be maybe discouragement. I don't know. I mean... In my lifetime, there's been four people, that's all in my lifetime, that have professed to know Jesus as Savior as either vice president or president. Ronald Reagan said he had been born again. George Bush Jr. said Billy Graham led him to the Lord when he's an alcoholic. Dan Quell, I knew his pastor, I preached for his pastor up in Michigan, was a born-again Christian, and Mike Pence. So, you know, we have to pray for our country during this time. And, uh, you know, this is very hard for me for a man who for uh, 40 years has never ever preached about politics in the pulpit, but I'm so concerned about, you know, our right to worship God, our freedoms in Christ, and we need to pray 
And, and, but we can always rest in this verse. Look what it says. The king's heart is in the Lord's hand, or is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whatsoever he will. No matter who wins, as Christians, we can say, thank God. Thank God. And you know, I have never gotten in pulpits and attacked any presidential or any president ever. Here's why. My Bible says don't speak evil of dignitaries. My Bible says to pray for our leaders faithfully. That's what I do. Now I vote and uh, privately I'll speak against policies and I've preached against things publicly that I can't stand in our country. I can't stand abortion. I can't stand it. I can't stand applying civil rights to sin groups. Civil rights were clearly written to take care of races of people that were treated poorly. We, we know racism is a terrible sin. And so I preach against those things. And I always will. And I always will. I always, I'll always say the man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. I'll preach that because it's in the Bible. But I'll pray for whoever wins. And my stomach may be in knots <laughs> with whoever wins and the leadership we may have. And, and frankly, I've always had to learn to trust in God. And I vote and I pray, but I don't break fellowship with people who disagree with me. I just pray for our country. And this is a good verse to hang on to in the coming weeks, isn't it? Did you know when Nebuchadnezzar, an evil monarch, was ruling the world, the Bible calls him a minister of God? Did you know Romans says that our leaders are ministers of God? Did you know that? Isn't that something? They're ministers of God. They may not even be saved, but they're still God's servants. And God will manipulate them. You see, Jesus is coming back. And God may just allow for our world to get so bad and those signs of the tribulation period to manifest themselves so much, then God will say, Jesus, go get the bride. Hey, I'm looking forward to that. The Bible says men will wax worse and worse. Don't think our country's gonna get better. In my lifetime, every 10 years, I've been able to look back and say in the last 10 years, we got worse again. We got worse again. And I don't think a political leader will save our country God is the only one that can keep us afloat. We need to be good to Israel and we need to hate sin as a country. And when our leaders don't do that, we pray for them. We speak against their policies, but we pray for God to manipulate them and pray for their salvation. So here, God did this with the Edomites. He took all their confederacy away and, and he humbled them. Job chapter five, another passage worth looking at. Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5 and verses 12 and 13. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah, no matter, I mean, who gets in leadership in our world, God's still going to do what he wants to do because he's God. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Proverbs 5, not Proverbs, Job 5, 13. Did I say Proverbs? I meant Job. Job 5, 12 and 13. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. 
I mean, that's talking about going over a cliff. So God will deal with all the craftiness and evil in our world. But it's in his timing. The Bible said he makes everything beautiful in his time. So while God may allow the world to just self-destruct and get worse and worse, it's only because he's preparing the world for his arrival. He'll rapture the church and seven years later come down and set up his kingdom. So pray, but trust God. Now notice back in our text, several things. Back in our text, we'll notice, we notice that their possessions were devoured, their allies had deserted them, and finally their men were destroyed. Look at verse 8. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Egypt and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? They're not going to be able to figure anything out. God's going to take it all away. And the mighty men of Teman shall be dismayed. Teman was the first son of Esau. So the mighty men of Teman shall be dismayed to the end that everyone of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Oh, wow. God's going to deal with this. He'll deceive them. Verse 7. It says in the middle of the verse, with thee have deceived thee. All the people that were at peace, verse 7, would deceive you. So it'd be, they'd be deceived, they'd be deceived, then they'd be destroyed. Do you know there are 50 synonyms or Hebrew words translated destroyed in the Bible? And the most severe one is used right here. They're going to be destroyed. In other words, killed, cut off by slaughter. Then we find they're dismayed, verse 9. And the mighty men of Teman shall be dismayed. Dismayed. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. Isaiah 9, 4. I hope you mark your Bibles. I always have a copy of my notes. If you need those, uh, there's always a copy. And Mike will always give them a copy. He's so gracious to our podcast. Thank you, Mike. And Bryce has a copy for music. And I'll always provide for you anything you need. But we want to look at this. You need to mark your Bible. The word dismayed in our text over in Isaiah 9, verse 4. Here it says, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor in the day of Midian. The word broken there. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. The word broken is the same Hebrew word translated dismayed. In other words, God sometimes breaks people. He'll break Edom. And folks, I hate to tell you this, but sometimes God breaks us. He'll break us. When we become proud, we start to think more highly of ourselves and we ought to think God will just touch us and break us and humble us. I've been there. And I may need to be there again. That's what God does. You say, Brother Dan, why would you admit that? Well, you already know it. You already know that I'm just a rotten sinner that's been saved by grace. I hope you understand that. If you don't know that, then you put your pastor on a pedestal. That's a mistake. The higher you put someone up on a pedestal when they fall, the more pieces they break into. Don't elevate your pastor. Listen to what the Word of God says. Respect the position, but realize the man is no different than you are. As Vince Lombardi used to say to his players, they put their pants on the same way you do. Amen? Amen. Bryce is just saved by grace. In his flesh, there's nothing good. 
Same with me, same with you. God sometimes has to break us. And there's been a, in times in my life as a preacher where I started to think, well, you know, I'm called up here and preaching at this church and this big church pastor calls me and asks me to come and speak and I started thinking, man, I must be good. You think like that, don't you? I do. And then God just reveals it to you. You're not as smart as you think you are. You know, I've had to get up before churches studying hours and hours and hours. I've had to get up before churches and say, you know, a few weeks ago I preached something and I went and studied it and I found out I made a mistake and when I ask you, I apologize because I taught that wrong. Say, really? Absolutely. Look at the men of the Bible who were great men. They made mistakes. Certainly those of us that are just deity and dirt now, you know, I'm just dirt like you are. We're made from clay. The only thing good in me is deity. The rest was just clay. And if men of God like Moses made mistakes and and in all the others in the Bible, certainly we have to recognize what we are. Without God, we are nothing. And God will break us if he needs to. He's broken me, and I hope he doesn't have to do it again. I'm reminded of Scripture where it says, Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Do you know if you don't humble yourself, he's going to break you. Because he's got to make you what you need to be. He's preparing a bride for Jesus. And we're going to be adorned in white. In my robe of white, I'll fly away. I mean, that's going to be something. And at that time, I'll be what I should be. I'll be complete in him. And the fullness of God will have complete control of me. And he'll change my body in just a moment at the rapture. And give me a new body. And I'll be perfect when I meet Jesus. But in the meantime, I'm earthly. Yeah, I'm thankful for what he is in my life. Another word we look at back at our text, the word wise. For sake of time, we won't look it up, but in verse eight, it says here, he'll even destroy the wise men out of Edom. That word is translated subtle in 2 Samuel 13, 3. I've already quoted, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The subtleness of the Edomites would just abandon them. That word's often used to describe magicians in the Bible. Clever, smart people who can manipulate. And that's what the Edomites were. They were clever people. They manipulated. They had all these nations they made agreements and leagues with and thought, man, those nations aren't going to attack us. We let them pass through for, for free and we have good relationships. But God turns the heart of the king and he turned all those kings against them. And God brought them down because God is wiser than man. And God is the all-wise, all-omniscient, all-knowing God, all-powerful God, impotent God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And they were wise, and they had these agreement, agreements and all that, and God just took it all. You know what we need to learn, folks? Not to trust in the world's prudence. You know what the Bible says? The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God foolishness. 
Don't trust in the world's proofs. Don't trust in the world's power. It says not many mighty are saved. And Samuel talks about how the mighty have fallen. Don't trust in the world's power. God's all powerful. Don't trust in the world's people. Look at Psalm 118. We're going to look at two more verses. Two more verses. Psalm 118. Don't trust in the world's prudence, their power, the world's people. Psalm 119. 118, excuse me. Psalm 118. 118, 8 and 9. You've got to mark these verses as well in your Bible because so many times we are dependent and we totally trust in the wrong thing. Look at Psalm 118. 8 and 9. It says here, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better, better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. You can't trust fellow man and you can't trust princes. You need to trust in God. I'm not saying not to trust people. We're told to trust people. But we're supposed to trust the Lord. And, and that's what this text is saying. You trust the Lord first. Maybe he gives you peace about trusting someone else. You know, I trust my kids, but I also keep an eye on them. <laughs> Not anymore. It's kind of hard when they're as old as they are. Sometimes they'll say to me, Dad, I'm 37 or something. <laughs> you know, Dad, thanks for the advice, but my wife and I will think it over, you know, and we'll make our decision. Yeah, you never stop being a dad. I trust them, but growing up, I trusted them too, but I always kept an eye on them, you know? Because sometimes they broke that trust. There's only one person, folks, you can trust, on, trust in forever and ever and in every decision. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Yeah. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, even the little ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Look at Proverbs chapter 11. I said we'd go to two verses. Proverbs 11. We learn not to trust in prudence, in the prudence of the world, in the world's power, in the world's people. And then in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Don't trust in the world's prosperity. 11:28. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Don't trust in the world's riches. Trust in the riches of grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't trust in the world's riches. You'll leave it all behind anyway. You know, years ago, it used to be that when mom and dad got old, mom and dad would be taken care of in the home. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to put someone in a nursing home, but things certainly are changing. There are times you just can't help it. You have to put them in the nursing home. But it, the pendulum's gone so far the other way. Now kids wait until mom and dad are gone, and they're already fighting over the will before mom and dad are gone. Jesus rebuked the Sadducees and Pharisees and said, you, you want you, you to just give a big offering to take care of your parents and then not have to fool them again. But you know, we're always supposed to take care of our parents. And when now it's become fighting over the will and what are mom and dad going to leave behind? It didn't used to be that way. We'll take care of mom and dad. Now it's, I can be a bum on my life because my parents are going to leave me everything one day. And there are people that think like that. And there are people fighting about their mom and dad's will before mom and dad are even gone. 
don't trust in mom and dad and in mom and dad's riches either. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Let's conclude with some practical application. We can always talk about pride and we can talk about the Edomites, but we also need to talk about our own struggles with pride. Think with me just for a minute. Pride, we know we already said, causes people to go to hell. If you're here today and you don't admit you're a sinner, that's pride. And if you don't admit you're a sinner and humble yourself and depend on God for salvation, you're going to hell. I don't care who you are, you have to repent of the fact that you're a sinner. But think about this, Christian, because we have to get close to home. We talked about Edom. We talked about sinners. What about ourselves? Pride causes you not to say you're wrong. Think there a few minutes. We don't admit we're wrong because of pride. Pride hinders us from saying we're sorry. Can you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? That's a hard thing to do. I I've been right on everything in my entire life. The only time I was wrong is when I thought I was wrong. Of course, that's all a lie. But saying I was wrong and saying I'm sorry has always been hard to do. You know why? Because of what? Pride. Think about that. Have you said you're sorry to someone you need to apologize to? Have you said you're wrong? Pride also hinders us from saying kind things to people. Well, I don't want to tell him it was a good song. It's, he sings maybe a little better than I do, you know. And I don't want to say something kind. Sometimes pride hinders us from even telling our own wife she's beautiful. You know, pride hinders us. And it's, it's, it starts when we're young and it just seems as though we struggle all of our lives to compliment people. We struggle all of our lives to admit we're wrong and to say we're sorry. And we struggle prior to being saved sometimes to admit we're sinners and to know he's the only way of salvation. Ask yourself, have I admitted I was wrong to somebody? Have I, do I need to say I'm sorry? The first apology you owe is to God for your sinfulness. Admit to God what you are, but then be willing to confess your faults one to another. That's humility. And if you can't say you're sorry to someone you've hurt, then you're a proud person and God will humble you. I don't want for God to force me to my knees. I'm going to gladly get on him and say, God, help me, help me, help me, God, I'm proud. Help me to say I'm sorry even to my kids. I've had to say it so many times. You get mad and you have to go back and say, I'm sorry, I'm just a sinner. Will you forgive me for yelling at your son? I'm sorry for my attitude. They're great words, but they're sure hard to say sometimes. But if you're gonna be a leader for God, if you're going to be a humble servant of God, learn to say, I'm sorry. Let's pray. God, thank you.
before sending Jesus, who humbled himself, Philippians 2, and became obedient even to die and become sin. Thank you for his humility. Even when he was alive, he took off his royal coat and his coat of a rabbi and he washed the disciples' dirty feet. Thank you for the example of humility. Help us, God, to realize that we need to be the least in this kingdom. To apologize, to admit we're wrong. If we're ever going to be right with you, we have to admit we're wrong. God, I pray if there's anybody here who's not saved, they'll come forward today and admit they're a sinner. And God, maybe there's some here today that say, I need to make a phone call. I need to write a card. I need to apologize to someone. And maybe many people, I don't know, but I know you know the hearts. And right now you can put a thought in everyone's mind here today as to who they need to say they're sorry to. Or who they need to encourage, lift up. I don't know, God, but you do. And your Holy Spirit is at work in us all the time. Thank you, God. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.